0: In today's featured interview, we're going to talk about the art of negotiation with Christine McKay. You definitely don't want to miss this one, so don't you change that dial or drop that phone. We're about to level it up and shatter the mold. Question. In a world where groupthink is the norm, others want what you've earned, and thinking for yourself will get a target painted on your back, how do you flip the script and level up your business, your money, relationships, your health, your status, and your life? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Andrew S. Kaplan, and it's time to shatter the mold. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Shatter the Mold. Andrew S. Kaplan, really excited to be here with you today. We've got an awesome guest and an awesome interview for you, and you are going to learn a lot about negotiation. I guarantee you that. And you're going to be able to really apply it to all different areas of your life. But before we get there, Quick update on the last Law of Attraction book you'll ever need to read. I continue to be amazed by the wonderful five-star rave reviews and all the positive emails that come in from all the new readers. Thank you so much for picking up the book. And also thank you so much for letting me know what you think about it. I appreciate it more than words can say. I'm also super grateful to report, as I've done in prior episodes, that the book's recently been featured in USA Today, in an article titled 20 Reading Suggestions for A New and Improved You in 2021, and in Forbes in an article titled 21 Books to Read in 2021. You never know, there may be some more articles on the way after that, but in the meantime, if you haven't checked out the book yet, you can go ahead and go to lastlawofattractionbook.com. That'll auto-forward you to the Amazon listing, where you can get it in Kindle format or paperback, or if you prefer the audiobook, that'll be there for you as well. And if you don't want to pull out your wallet, you can always go to youtube.com slash Andrew That's where I publish content in support of this for free, of course, where you can check out new methods. You can listen to interviews with law of attraction experts and a few other fun surprises there as well. But with that said, let's get straight to today's featured interview. Christine McKay is a global negotiation strategist boasting nearly three decades of negotiation experience in 53 countries and across countless industries. She's the founder and CEO of Venn Negotiation and the host of a brand new podcast called In the Ven Zone, we recorded this interview a little while back, so it may mention an older title for the podcast that she later updated, but it's a really unique show about the art of negotiation, and this was a really fun interview. So with that said, let's switch up our mics and dive straight into this interview with Christine. I guarantee you, you're going to love this one. Christine McKay, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Shattered to Mold.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I've loved the conversations that we've had before, and so I'm really excited to be here with you and your audience.
0: Thank you so much. I'm excited as well, and it's so cool because I know, you know you're, you're launching a new podcast, and it's always interesting, just the way the flow of a conversation goes with another podcast host, it always has this, like, this very unique texture and dynamic to it. And the thing that makes this conversation so, you know, interesting to me is just, you know, the topic of your podcast and really just the direction of your company and what you do as a vocation. I find it so interesting because it really is, it's specialized. It's something where, and we had, this is actually the the last time we had a conversation about this. I think the interesting thing is, you know, it's something that can be taught, but most of the time, by the time people get to it, where they want to learn, they don't got time to learn. They just, they need an expert who's going to come in. So I love the fact that one, you offer as a service to do for people, but also you're providing this new vehicle to give people a glimpse of what negotiation is about so that they, they're kind of like they're being entertained and trained at the same time in this area. But with that said, you know, I know I kind of like gave a little bit of a a piece of this. What were all the, the inspirations and motivations behind starting this podcast right now at this point in time for yourself?
1: so I so as a global negotiation strategist, and having worked in all these countries um, i 've worked with a lot of fortune five hundred, and I did that for a long time and I saw in that in my experience with those these big companies how much they took advantage of small businesses, and it frustrated me and so i looked at looked at these companies, I looked at their their small business customers and suppliers, and I went. There is no way that I would sign the deals that a lot of these smaller businesses are signing just to to get, you know, have a marquee customer, for example. And so I have a client, or I have a client and a and a friend as well who makes manufacture manufacture small parts for. NASA, Boeing, Raytheon, he's all over the aerospace defense industry. He has 12 employees and one of those big companies sent him a contract where they want to be able to expedite 50% of an order at no additional cost. Like, How do you do that? Do you store inventory? Do you have it as raw materials? Do you do finished goods? Do you have the resources to be able to manufacture an expedited order? Do you have the contracts to be able to ship it? And the thing that's so frustrating is that example, when, when, we, when he got that contract and was telling me about it, I was like, you know, what really frustrates me is that there are small businesses that have signed that contract without renegotiating that. Mm. Otherwise, that big company would not have it in its initial going out terms and conditions. And so for me, part of the the reason why small business loses so often against larger companies is because they don't have the access to training. We're never trained really to be negotiators. Even as I went to Harvard Business School even at Harvard Business School, where they have training, we have a course on negotiation. They don't actually teach us how to change how we negotiate. They make us aware of some of the things that you should do, but they Mm -hmm. don't like help you figure out how to change your personality or change your negotiation style to get more leverage. They tell you about how to do some of the analysis, but they don't talk to you about kind of the human aspects in a lot of ways. And so for me, in order to reach as many small businesses as i can to help them level the playing field the podcast concept just kind of came to me as a way of saying you know one of the best ways to learn um, to learn is to actually um do case studies what a better way to do, do to reach a lot of people than to do case studies on a podcast so people can actually listen to you know, side one of the the negotiation, and then listen to the other side of the negotiation. And then I come in and say, given those two sides, this is how I would, this is, this is where they have common ground. This is where they have, you know, still have a gap in where, what they need to overcome. And this might be in the areas of value that exist that they're not even seeing yet. And I'm really super excited about that.
0: Hmm. Now, I might be skipping around here, but just, you know, hearing that answer, hearing what you said, a, a word that pops out to me, because I don't have a lot of experience with negotiation is the term renegotiation. Mm -hmm. And one, by the way, I'm I might be describing this in a way that isn't really accurate of what the word means. So you can feel free to jump in and let me know about that. But I hear the word renegotiation and I automatically have this um, almost like a constricting feeling in my chest because I feel like it's one of those awkward social situations where it's like, I know I gave my word. I know I promised X, Y, and Z. And now I'm changing my mind and now here's the social pressure and awkwardness of me telling the person who I gave my promise to along with the financial commitment. Like, is that really what this is about? Or is, is does renegotiate mean something in a different way? Or am I overinflating it as a way that most people do, which is why I've never been successful at it.
1: So let me ask you a question. So when you enter into a relationship do you expect the terms of that relationship to stay the same for the lifetime of that relationship?
0: Um, it's, it's so funny. I, I shouldn't, but it's kind of like my brain defaults to that. But by that same token, I intuitively know that the conditions by which everything is built on will not maintain the same thing, which is why even hearing you ask that perfectly sensible question, I shouldn't even be going in with that concept in my mind.
1: So the thing is, is I I kind of use my my marriage as an example. So my husband and I have been married for 27 years. And the, the deal that we entered into when we first got married was one thing. We had I had three kids that I came into the marriage with. They were all, you know, in elementary school. We had a different financial situation. I hadn't gotten my MBA yet. Um, We were living in one area and life changes and jobs changed and our kids grew up and left home. And so the deal that we entered into When we, you know, got married was one thing, but it has changed and we have renegotiated different aspects of our marriage Mm -hmm. over time. And I always ask business people, do you believe in having a customer for a lifetime? And everyone invariably raises their head. Yes, yes. And I'm like, do you have a strategy of renegotiation that you talk about in your sales process?
2: Mm.
1: nobody raises their hand. And I, and in my view, if you don't have a strategy that embraces the concept of renegotiation that you talk about in your sales process, then you do not believe in having a customer for a lifetime because the customer that you sign today, you hope that that customer is going to grow. And as they grow, their needs change, they expand their culture changes. They just like in a marriage, That relationship is going to change over time. Are you able to grow with them? Are you able to give them things in five years that you're not able to do today? So this notion of renegotiation absolutely, in my mind, should be something that should be prevalent in any business relationship. What happens, though, is we sign contracts in business. And then we have that contract, and I've ne- gone back and renegotiated contracts that have existed for over 20 years. Matter of fact, just like three years ago, I negotiated a contract with an aerospace defense company that still had Y2K language in their standard contract. Oh, wow! Now it stands to reason that they still have Y2K language if they have an old product or an old program that actually still. Is using technology that hasn't been updated, and I'm sure in the aerospace and defense industry they do, but it shouldn't be part of their standard contract. Very that's a, that's a very rare thing now to have to, to have that requirement. So why why is that still part of standard language? Because they haven't done anything to update. They haven't done anything to update the the relationship. Mm. And so making sure that you create uh, for me, it's like. Contracts should be reviewed every two years at minimum and and should be completely rewritten after five years because in five years, businesses have changed so much that the, the deal that was signed five years ago is likely not working, but people just get lazy with it and they don't want to do anything with it because we make contracts so complicated. And we think that all these lawyers have to be involved and that doesn't have to be the case either. (laughs) So
0: so. So, this is really interesting because, you know, you, you say this like every couple of years, Uh, people listening right now, they're probably thinking, wow, I wish I knew that. And wow. I'm all of a sudden I'm thinking of all the contracts I'm in and I'm wondering how bad I'm getting screwed in certain things. Mm -hmm. And I guess a question for you, and I don't want to give away your secret sauce, but you know, how do you even broach that topic? How do you approach somebody when it's time to make that decision, especially when neither you nor them even had a renegotiation as a concept in their mind, even if it's a healthy thing to do?
1: So I boil the topic of renegotiation down into five different risk aspects. So risk management, so contracts are risk mitigation tools. That's all they are. And every contract, whether it's formal or informal, so formal, uh, an attorney wrote it, it's on your, you know, it's you know, a big document that both parties sign. It could be terms and conditions that are on a purchase order or a sales order. Or informal, it could be written on the back of a napkin. It could be sent in an email. It could be a handshake, and you better hope that both have good memories. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, so contracts can be either formal or informal. But regardless of which type they are, they're still geared toward mitigating risk. And there are five types of risks, and those five types of risks Become the rationale for renegotiation, so the first one is cash flow. So I had a client once who manufactured they did um uh, uh, product merchandise stuff, so they branded coffee mugs and tote bags and all that and it was It was in the dot com era, and most of their customers were uh, in the tech industry, and that industry was c- collapsing. People's spending were dry, was drying up. But they did have a very large customer in Coca-Cola.
2: Hmm. But
1: Coca-Cola was pay, taking 180 days to pay an invoice. Hmm. So this client had a lot of customers, um, but, those custo- but the customer spending was shrinking, right? And that industry was dying, but they had this one big customer that they just couldn't get the revenue in fast enough. So we developed a renegotiation strategy based on cash flow and the need. And and our whole discussion was all about what do we need to do with Coca-Cola? What do we need to do to get you to pay us faster? Because they needed that money to be coming in sooner in order to mitigate some of the losses that they were seeing by not getting revenue in the tech industry. And so they did a lot of different things around shipping and um, a couple of other things around consolidation of product. And and Coca-Cola agreed to move the the payment cycle and they accelerated it. So it became a 60 day pay cycle and it helped save that company and keep it in business. So that's cash flows one. Profitability is another. I had a client who was a software company. Small business they were they owed a it was an internet services provider they owed their owed their hosting provider over a million dollars and couldn 't pay it, which on the surface seems like it could be cash flow, but the CEO had a very specific plan of long term growth and he was wanting to get investment in. So in order to get new investors in, he needed to show profitability. So cash flow wasn't going to be the that wasn't the argument. So because it was profitability that was driving the renegotiation, we did all sorts of things. We changed the product mix. We retrained the staff on how to use the product in a different way. We extended the term of the contract. We did a whole bunch of things in order to keep this relationship, but still impact, ca- impact profitability. And we absolutely dropped, we decreased that liability by 73%, which wow. went straight to the bottom line. Wow. So you have cash flow, you have profitability, you have operations. The the example I gave earlier, where the you know the the aerospace defense business, right? If you've got a a vendor who wants you or a, a customer who wants you to expedite your order or their orders, and they don't want you to be able to charge them for that, do you are you operationally able to do that? Do you have resources? Do you you have, what are you going to do about inventory? What are you going to do about shipping? Those are operational elements that drive the renegotiation. Then you have strategy. And I usually use software industry as an example. So in software, they have um, roadmaps, you know, features and benefits that are going to get developed over the next three to five years. But sometimes you have somebody, you're in a relationship with somebody and a customer says, that feature you're going to, you know, introduce in two years, I actually want it now. All right. Well, if you want it now, okay, so now you've got to make it, that's it. Cause that's that roadmap is driving the entire company activity. It's like, if I accelerate that, am I going to do that in parallel with what's already on my roadmap? What are the issues that come with that? Do I need resources? Do I have to enter into new contracts? Do I have ancillary or secondary um, software and services that I need to do? Um, How am I going to charge for it? Am I going to be able to get compensated in order to recover what cost is related to accelerating that? Or am I going to have to move something because I can't bring in the resources? Am I going to have to move something that's on my current roadmap and delay it? Well, what does that mean to my rest of my customers? What does that mean to profitability? So that's strategy. So you've got cash flow, profitability, operations, and strategy. Mm. And then you have legal. So Mm. see, contracts, out of contracts, 80% of a contract is business. It's not legal. And so we abdicate. We abdicate so often as small business owners, we abdicate our contracts to an attorney who doesn't understand our business. And 80% of the risk that's related to a contract is embedded in business risk, not legal. But in legal risks like California at the beginning of 2020, implemented AB5, Assembly Bill 5, and it made all gig workers full-time employees or employees for tax purposes and benefits and social security, all of that. And it's a huge thing. Uber and Lyft have threatened to leave California as a result of it. But that law, that legal that change in law, drove the need to renegotiate many different types of contracts across many different industries. Um, But that's an example of law driving the need to renegotiate. And so what happens is with renegotiation, when you think, when you boil, boil down the rationale for renegotiation into those five things, and you realize that four of those five things have nothing to do with law, they have to do with very pragmatic changes in your business. Then it makes it so that it's like, well, why wouldn't I ask to renegotiate?
2: Mm -hmm. Because
1: my business has changed. So, and
0: obviously we're, we're going down this path of like, you know, because I asked about renegotiation, but this is a situation where basically these are the kinds of things that you are accounting for upfront in like the podcast examples that you're going to give. You're going to be basically showing people how to watch out for all these things. And these are kind of basically, this is the context and the foundation from which you are going to be giving your reasoning as to why you're going in certain directions in these negotiations. Yep. Awesome. And really, I mean, Hearing you say this, that the clarification is um, that, that I'm getting from this is when you're when you're basically approaching someone to renegotiate, it isn't from the attitude of like screw you, um, I'm I'm screwing you over, and I'm deciding like to throw this away. It's listen, conditions have changed or have become outdated. Therefore, the current arrangement is not sustainable. And therefore, I need to have a conversation with you about what we can do to meet in the middle to maintain this moving forward. It's more of like it's not a confrontation thing, so to speak, although I'm sure it be- can become confrontational. But I would imagine that the ideal approach is something where it's more of like, listen, we're looking for a win-win here. And I'm letting you know about this now because otherwise we won't be able to continue anyway. So let's figure this out. Is that a correct way of putting it?
1: Well, communication is key and your ability to get a renegotiated deal. So the challenge, the difference between one of the big differences between doing a negotiation and a renegotiation in a negotiation, both parties or all parties have mutual benefit in the negotiation. In a renegotiation, the deal that's not working for you may still appear to be working for your counterpart. So your counterpart does not necessarily appear to have an incentive to renegotiate that deal. But even so that the way they're thinking about it, I was just talking last night to somebody who has real estate and he was talking about the type of uh, tenants that he's willing to renegotiate with. They have to have been perfect tenants, period. And perfect tenant for him means that Nobody that you could never ever ever have been late on any payment whatsoever to him, and that you have to have kept the property in pristine condition, and that you have to have had awesome communication with him mm. right. so those three if you if you hit all three of those and you need to renegotiate with him, then he 's open to that, but if you 're a miss on all three of those. He's happy to take his risks with you not going, being not continuing to be a, a tenant, because he's evaluating the cost of having you not be a good communicator, not taking care of his property, and the cost of late payment and what that means to him with his lenders, right? So he's evaluating that and saying, okay, I'm not I'm not interested in that. He also shared that he goes through. Uh, 20 applicants to get one tenant so he's very picky so he does things up front in order to be able to mitigate his risk on the back end Mm. but in one of the challenges that when people think about renegotiation is they don't think about they don't think about those things and that's true across negotiation and renegotiation people especially in western cultures Are very myopic and they focus very much on what they want what they need they have their checklists that they're going through and saying i want this i want this i want this and they don't spend enough time evaluating what how what they want is going to impact their counterpart and in my view it's one of the biggest mistakes people make in negotiating because if you can't articulate what you want in relationship to what your counterpart wants and needs then your ability to get to be successful in your negotiations is diminished.
0: Yeah. And I may be oversimplifying this, but it's basically about understanding the right carrot on the right stick for them so that you can get your carrot that you want. Also.
1: That's exactly Yes. That's, that's not oversimplifying. That's exactly right. That's exactly awesome. right. Yeah.
0: And, and it's really cool talking to someone like you about this because again, um, you know, you're someone who's negotiated all over the world Mm-hmm. And and I wonder, do you take that, exp- like when you're either coaching someone through a negotiation or you're, negotiation, you're excuse me, you're negotiating on their behalf, do you take the mindsets from other places that are a little bit more conducive and kind of inject that and try to infuse that with what you're doing in maybe more Western culture? Or do you keep it straight the way it is based on the region that you're in?
1: So there are certain things that I adjust and there are certain things that I don't. Um, I think that it it varies. So what my experience is, is that people are people everywhere. And while we have different cultural ideologies that drive certain types of behavior, um, like the way that the Israelis negotiate is different than the way the Canadians negotiate as a general stereotypic role, which is different than the way people in Argentina negotiate or people in Japan negotiate. And it is true that there are absolutely cultural implications of negotiation. And I, when I was starting to, when I learned negotiation, I was working in Southeast Asia. And so some of my negotiation style is based off of the things that I learned early in my negotiation career, which was almost 30 years ago now. So, um, but what I find is that, you know, there's that whole saying, you know, things, it's just business. Well, I don't, I don't believe that Um, because at the end of the day, and Chris Voss wrote a really good book called never split the difference. And I like what some of the things that he talks about in the book, Mm because he brings things down to humanity. And one of the things that he says is that negotiation is inherently emotional. Mm. And, and that is absolutely true. And the person who controls their emotions is the one who's the most likely to succeed more and get more of what they want out of, out of the negotiation process. So I adjust one of the things that I do, and because at at Venn Negotiation, we do programs to help people learn how to negotiate as well as doing negotiation on behalf of our clients. And when we're teaching people how to negotiate, we actually, we have an approach where you can learn, um, where you can, you start to, you learn your negotiation style and how you communicate. And then once you learn your negotiation style, you start to practice all of the negotiation styles because there are are four primary negotiation styles and we all use all of them. It's just that we don't do them intentionally and we tend to default to one. And even when I was at Harvard, this was a, a thing that while the negotiation training at Harvard is just amazing and my time at Harvard was phenomenal. The negotiation course, I used to get into debates all the time with my professors and one of the things that I would debate with them on was, you're not teaching me how to negotiate differently. You're teaching me how to evaluate the success or not of my negotiation, but how do I adjust my personality? How do I change a style? How do I, you know, accommodate or not? Right. So like if somebody, so we call the, The styles, we call it champion. A champion is somebody who sees the negotiation as a battle. And they go to it armed and armored, and they are all about winning at all costs. And we all have encountered somebody who negotiates like that. Now, while that can be a default style, it's not a very common default style. Only about 10% of negotiators fall into that camp. But when people are under pressure and they feel that they have no leverage and that they're in a losing situation and they're really stressed, they will drop to that. They will use that style because they don't know how to do anything else. So they think being mean about something is going to get them something. Mm. And you have a maverick who goes in. And about 55% of negotiators are mavericks. And I call them my checklist negotiators. They have their list of 10 things. They get item one, check, item two, check. And they just go down and they check their lists off. And they walk out, you know, maybe they got eight out of 10 of the things on their list. And they go, woohoo, I got an 80%. Yeah, I did great, great negotiation. But what they failed to realize is that the two things that they didn't get were the only two things that added real value because what they're not good at is seeing the interconnectivity between the, among the different things on their list and figuring out what their trade-offs are. They, do, they look at their list and kind of a lot, uh, look at them all almost equally and say, these are all important to me, but they're really not. And so they'll often give away things that they don't intend to. And they also, they don't, they don't, they're, they're not trying to, to, um, battle their counterpart, but they don't care about their counterpart, as long as they're getting what they want.
0: Yeah, Uh, I I was about to say, I I assume that that kind of personality type will often at at the expense of long term value, they'll almost get something on their checklist, not realizing that it's, it's um, halting their other party's ability to actually serve them and make them a bigger profit or get them better reach in their business or things like that.
1: That's exactly, exactly true. And that is one of the big challenges with the that Maverick style um, is that they're not because they don't care about their counterpart um, and they're not concerned about their counterpart. They miss that opportunity. They're not listening for those things that could create more value at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you have a benefactor and the benefactors, they appear to care about relationship. And I say appear to care about relationship because they do everything that they think they need to do in order to preserve the relationship when they're at the negotiation, the proverbial negotiation table. What that really means is that they're very conflict avoidant. And as a result of being conflict avoidant, they'll sometimes agree to things that they actually cannot deliver, which Mm. in turn ends up hurting the thing they care about the most, which is relationship because they're not able to deliver. They also often will feel that they've been taken advantage of or walked on in a negotiation because they're not asserting what they're themselves and what they need and want. And as a result, they can sometimes become passive aggressive in their relationship and that creates its own own issues. I was on a webinar not long ago that actually said that this was the worst of all of the negotiation styles because it's, it's so nebulous and it's, you just can't pin anything down and you don't know where you stand and you don't know if you're going to actually get with your, your problems. It Uh, creates
0: the most deep seated damage in unpredictable ways that you really, you might not, they might come and bite you five months from now or five decades from now, literally.
1: That's correct. And, and so that, you know, and, and, and again, like champions about 10% of negotiators fall into that category. So those, the champion and the benefactor are kind of the bookends in terms of kind of, uh, That They both have really strong disadvantages. Um, But even then, the benefactor can be really good, at least at the front end, if you're trying to repair a relationship and you need somebody to be more acquiescent in order to rebuild some goodwill, a benefactor can be really good at that. And then the last style is an ambassador. And an ambassador is all about creating uh, bigger pies. They're all about cooperative negotiation and trying to find ways to not necessarily win win they're not concerned about equality but they're inter- they're, they're concerned about uh, fairness and judicious and judicious negotiation and they want to make sure that that they're the ones who go in and they they're really good at reading between the lines like the maverick isn't. And they're always looking for ways to create more value for everybody, but they can kind of be a pain in the neck because they're slow at the negotiation process because they keep trying to look for different ways of adding more value. And sometimes they make take small things and make them big things when they don't need to. But they can also become when when they're working with somebody who's like a champion who's not cooperative. That can be very frustrating for an ambassador and they can sometimes become conflict avoidant as well. And so they have to be very careful. But the thing is, is we do all four of these styles. But the thing is, is that we start when we're little kids and we start, we figure out which style works best for us, which one is going to get us the most of what we want. And then we just keep going back to that style without any intention. And so what, if you can learn how to, adopt a style for a situation, authentically adopt a style for a situation. So it's not like gaming it. It's just like, Oh, this is a really bad situation. These guys, you know, we have a really bad relationship. I need to pull more of my benefactor out. I need to, you know, be a little more acquiescent in these areas and all that. And then when, when you can do that, it puts you, gives you a lot more strength and a lot more power in your negotiation.
0: So I'm hearing you described in this way, you know, an obvious correct assumption, I doubt I'm wrong about this, is that like part of what you do as a company and what you do when you're providing a service is through your experience, you're basically um, assessing instantly based on people's behavior, what style they're going with. And based on that, you're kind of reacting in a way that's going to be most in harmony with it. And I'm also making the assumption that you're almost going to maybe even via, via osmosis, for lack of a better word, like in your podcast by demonstrating like the dynamics of these negotiations that you're going through, you're going to be showing people like, Hey, listen, this person's leading. And I'm not sure if you're going to verbalize in this way, but they're, this is the ambassador right now and they're doing this thing right. And they're doing this thing wrong. And this is why a good negotiation move would be X, Y, Z. Is that a fair way of putting what you're doing?
1: So definitely in the podcast, everybody, everybody on the podcast is taking a quiz to learn their negotiation style.
2: Mm. so
1: I'll know everybody. I know everybody's negotiation style and it absolutely will come to play. We'll actually be able to talk about, so we've got two ambassadors, right? So, cause the, neither the counterpart, the first part person nor the second person will ever have done business together. So the kind of the, the, the segment where I'm providing the observation and the educational component is really if you, okay, if these two people were to meet in this negotiation, right? This is some of the things where their their negotiation styles would clash. Like if I get two champions that are trying to annihilate each other, that's going to be, that's going to be an interesting, interesting, mm. uh, interesting <laughs> yeah, that. right? But, and, or if you've got a benefactor and a champion, oh yeah, that's definitely going to be, and and we'll definitely talk, we're t- we'll talk about so if you're a benefactor negotiating with a champion on this topic, these are some of the things you need to do to elevate. If you're a champion, this is something things you need to do to kind of tone things down or find, you know, find those adjustments. And the thing is, is that you can have a, because of each segment of the podcast is like 20 minutes. So we won't be diving into like, like, you know, like have negotiated contracts that are hundreds of pages long. So we're not talking about all the, you know, a huge negotiation in a lot of cases. And so we're kind of narrowing the topic. And so the, you can have a topic that you become that you, if you're negotiating a large deal, that's complex, you may adopt every one of those styles at different points in the negotiation. Mm-hmm. You don't have to use the exact same style through the entire negotiation because you have different objectives for each piece. And this is one of the things that people don't do a good enough job usually in. in, and that is preparing for the negotiation. And the preparation of the negotiation is about getting your mindset right. It's about understanding what you want, why it's important to you and how it's going to translate to your counterpart. And if we don't do those three things up front, then you you're not able to then take and figure out how does how do the different styles play into the different aspects of what it is that I want. Well wow. make sure you
2: know,
0: the, the way you, you kind of are taking all all the listeners right now down this road, it, it reveals why negotiation is often so misunderstood and often like a difficult thing to master. You don't master it overnight in most cases. Mm-hmm. And you know it's basically a thing where there, there's so many misnomers, like everybody knows going into negotiation, whether or not they adhere to it, like don't get emotional. But that is such an incomplete answer. It's, it's about understanding emotions like it isn't just about keeping your cool. It's about understanding the dynamics of emotions and how they may be driving you or the other party during the negotiation before the negotiation and like throughout the whole life of this relationship whether it's a one-year contract or a 10-year contract or whatever it might be this isn't about like oh no no don't lose your cool that is such a simplified incomplete way of looking about this it's more about understanding emotions understanding the consequences of how one or the other person's emotions may come into play how it's almost like um it's like the butterfly effect. You know, you, you piss one person off in this moment. It's going to affect the whole negotiation because it's going to stick in their craw. They're not going to forget about it until they get what they want on something else that you weren't even anticipating. It could be like such a weird, long, complicated web. Um, and that that's basically what I'm getting from this because there's so much to this. And this is also, by the way, like, thank you for, because I've never heard of a podcast like this before. Thank you for championing this kind of mindset just in terms of like, Listen, understand the dynamics so that when you go into a negotiation, you're actually building it in a way that it's going to lead to a more conducive relationship with that other party where you're making money and you're providing value. And ideally, you have a life that's a lot less, a lot more free of stress so that you can do other great things in your business and in your life.
1: Absolutely. And I mean again negotiation is about relationship and that is i mean i when i when i do events i, I was just spoke at an event yesterday and i was like if you if you have a parent raise your hand and i'm like you're in a you are an amazing negotiator when you were a child you were an amazing negotiator and if if you if your listeners have any of your listeners have kids you look at your kids and they're like, "Oh my God, they can negotiate like crazy," um, but after over time, we start we get all these messages around it. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I will this was like I will never forget this. This guy was um, he was talking. He's like, How, "Why would you?" And I'm going to do what he did. He's like, "Why would you ever want to talk about negotiation?" Mm. all about conflict, I mean, and he literally clenched his fists and protected his body
0: yeah we're we're going to have this on video, but for those listening on the audio, as Christine was saying those words, she was clenching her fists and basically like cover like like protecting herself or, yeah or going in a, yeah. in a an evasive mode
1: and and that's what he did, and I was like wow this is a this is a gentleman who clearly sees negotiation as conflict Mm. and conflict that he's not won as often as he would like. And he's, if he were to do the quit, do the negotiation quiz, he's probably a benefactor. And, um, and the thing is, is that negotiation isn't about conflict. It's actually about how to avoid conflict. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually, it was on that same show that I was, I said here, the thing is, is that when we are negotiating, right? And we have contracts. Contracts, formal and informal, are about hope. And I was like, all oh my, and, and now I talk about, because this is, how I truly believe this, and my lawyer friends, they laugh at me, and I'm like, but think about it. You have two people or more, and you you, you each have something the, the other person or, or company wants. And so you come up, you get, you create this business case, you do this analysis, you you know, you come up with this contract and what you're gonna pay and how delivery is gonna look like. You've got all these different parameters to it. And it's all based on the hope that the relationship will be mutually beneficial over time. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: so When we think about negotiation as conflict and as something that, you know, emotes, right, this like intense fear for a lot of people, it's really unfortunate because it, it doesn't need to be that way because it's really all about the hope of a future together that's going to be better than the future would be if I didn't have that relationship. The thing is, is that what people convince themselves, and this is why the hardest part of any negotiation is the negotiation we have in between our ears. And the the work that you do around law of attraction is hugely important in negotiation. If you don't believe that you deserve something, if you do not believe you are worthy of it, you are not likely to get it even if you ask for it Mm -hmm. because you have to have faith that it's doable. I tell a story about buying two cars for the price of one plus $5,000. I actually walked into the dealership and asked for two cars for the price of one. And people usually go, what? (laughs) Um, but i knew because i had done homework that it was a doable proposition for the car dealer i'd done all this research all this homework all this analysis and i was like the dealer legitimately could sell me two cars for the price of one i happened to be wrong on my inventory holding costs by about 5 grand so we upped the offer so i bought two cars for the price of one plus $5000 mm-hmm. but it was because i i had i had conv- i had told myself be, that it was a doable thing because I had done my homework and I was prepared. But in terms of kind of law of attraction, I was like so confident that I was it, there was no question that it was going to happen.
0: Yeah,
1: so I, yeah, it's totally. And, and even
0: happen. even for people that didn't, I mean, I obviously believe law of attraction is legit. But even if people that don't believe that. It's then just called the confidence that comes across in your body language, the the cadence in your voice, your subconscious mind putting pieces together and and clicking things together so that you have a better strategy and that you figure things out. Like, yeah, law of attraction is legit, but people that don't believe it, there's a lot more reasons than that to want to have that confidence. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, yeah,
0: that's amazing. Now I have a bit of a a loaded dual double question, even though that was redundant in how I said that. Um, (laughs) And and you'll see like the wisdom in it. And I always just, you know, I, whenever I'm with an expert, I try to get some really bang for my audience's buck, especially since they're not paying anything right now. Um, so I want to give you two for instances. Okay. One is an instance, for instance, where um, you're at the negotiating table and you can tell that the other person is, I guess they're um, a champion from, if I'm remembering the terminology, yeah. right? Or they're, they're basically bullying you and they've, they've, they've taken too much leverage and too much power and you want a, a power move that's going to reestablish your positioning. On the other hand, another situation, so hopefully I just look like I'm more mature in my questioning, you also, maybe you're such an experienced negotiator that you've recognized that inadvertently for an ambassador, or maybe I'm using the wrong term, they're giving too, or a benefactor, they're giving too much right off the bat, and you know it's going to mess things up down the line, even though they seem like a happy rant. So my question is, when you're getting bullied, quote-unquote, What's a good power move to reestablish position? And when you're inadvertently bullying the other person or they're letting themselves be bullied, what's a power move to get them back on even plane so that the negotiation will end up being healthier in the long term?
1: So there are a few power moves when you're getting bullied. So um, so I, you, you and I both know Blair Dunkley and I've been going to his uh, weekly uh, his weekly things on Tuesdays, which have been amazing. And he actually put some language around some of the things that I have done naturally that I didn't even think about. So, one of the big power moves is never ask a why question, mm. only ask what and how questions. Um, because it so one of the so one of the tools that a bully will use in a negotiation is the word because. And well, just because, well, that's the way we do it here, especially big companies to smaller companies. So in David, what I call David and Goliath negotiations, the Goliath often is like, well, this is just the way we do it. I don't have the authority. I'm well, well, no kidding. You don't have the authority, but you know, it's like, but so they'll come up with these, these non non answers as to why they're doing something. They can say that. Well, why, why can't you do that? Because, Hmm. but when you say, Well, what might happen if you did this anyway?
2: Right.
1: Right. We lead them down a different path of discussion. And so that using what and how questions is a really good way to diffuse a bully. I also have a a saying that I developed in kind of one of the most quintessential bullying, good cop, bad cop negotiations I've ever been in literally had somebody throwing things across the room they oh my god I, I, yeah it yeah it was a thing so my saying is that a boiling teapot eventually runs out of steam and it's true because essentially when somebody's trying to bully you they're trying to get a reaction out of you and it's your reaction that they will then use against you And this is the point at where the person who is the calmest one at the table is going to win more because emotion, because a bully is just an emotional negotiator. They're negotiating based on faith, not based on fact. And I don't mean religious faith, but faith that they're right and you're wrong or their need to prove or be right and make sure you're wrong or their need in the case of a champion to win versus you lose right so the more you buy into their emotional state the the more power you are giving them mm-hmm. so at harvard they call it going to the balcony get up and walk out of the room and take a break just take a break and you know if you can try to diffuse the conversation by you know, having conversation about have something that has nothing to do with what you're negotiating. When I bought the two cars for the price of, when I bought those two cars, the manager, the dealer was pretty unhappy with me. And he got mad and he was getting super emotional. And it happened to be a Friday night. And I looked at my watch and said to my husband, I was like, it's, it's, we have a date night at seven o'clock we have reservations. We should get going. And then I looked at the, the manager and I said, so what are you doing this weekend? Cause you're working tonight. So I'm assuming you're not working tomorrow. What are you up to tomorrow and Saturday? And it totally threw him for, he took him out of his anger state
2: mm.
1: and put him in a different state of mind because he was surprised by the question. And then And then he offered the answer and he's like, well, I do dog sled racing and I have a dog sled race tomorrow. And I was like, oh, that's really awesome. I'm from Montana. The Iditarod winner was from Lincoln, Montana for a couple years. We had a standard poodle at the time. There was this huge controversy on standard poodles racing in the Iditarod. So we talked for 10 minutes about the Iditarod, right? So he was mad change the tone of the conversation, change the nature of the conversation, diffuse the anger. And then it was like, Okay, now let's get back to this car situation. Yeah. And I said, This is my math, this is the thing and he's like, You're wrong on your holding costs, so that's why we changed the offer.
0: It's really interesting because like basically and I mean, I, I know you're aware of this stuff also, but it, kind of like we've, we've entered the copywriting sales world, where like, for example, you don't say because, like anyone that's read uh, Robert Cialdini's uh, Influence, they know that you can use, yeah, it's great, right? They know that you can use the word because as, um, you know, basically you know, leverage in, in, your, in your position. But also, I mean, you basically described a pattern interrupt where you're talking about yeah. getting up and leaving the room and you're talking to change the conversation, to interrupt, which is brilliant because in the end, in many ways, a negotiation is a sale. You're selling them on, on doing business and on, on keeping faith with whatever agreement you, you're making together. Mm-hmm. Now um, just to follow the thread on this, thank you for answering that other part. Um, just to follow up on the part about like, you know, you recognize that inadvertently this person's letting themselves get bullied and you don't want to like lose face but you do have to give them some kind of way by which they're reestablishing some kind of even ground just, and let me know if that doesn't happen, but I'm assuming it happens. Like Mm -hmm. when, when you're at that level of the game where you can identify that and you know, this is going to be a great negotiation for the next month, but it's going to really suck in two years. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What do you say to get them back on track without turning them into a champion or getting them overzealous where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden now they're trying to walk all over you?
1: So usually, like, I feel that somebody's giving away more than what they should, and based on my analysis, that that give from them is going to cost me more in the long term. I'll use questions to get them, help them get on track without them losing face. Got it. Right. So I'll say, well, because I'll see, because in my, because I go when I go into negotiation, I'm generally very, very prepared. So I've done a lot of homework on the the financials of what my world looks like, what the counterparts world looks like and what the deal looks like,
2: mm. and how
1: the deal is going to impact both of us. So if I look across time and I'm like, well, crap, I think that if they did that, I think it's going to have this negative impact on whatever. Um, then I'll say, I might say, well, how would that look if, You know, if some of this and this happened in the future, what would you, you know, what would you do to address that? Um, So then I turn it into a risk mitigation discussion and I'll either do something to negotiate something in the contract that protects me from the risk because I'll see that I may see the risk and go, okay, well, if we do that, then I need some, I need some concession that protects me on some downside. Mm-hmm. right and then that sometimes will get them to thinking um one of the great things that a, great tools that a lot of people have in negotiations is but small business businesses don't usually have it because um and that is having kind of somebody else to go to and so in a, in a corporation somebody like me is not the ceo right Somebody like me has the CEO to go to to say, because I can sit in a table and say, well, I I can try to do that. I just don't know if I can get that approved. But in a small business, it's usually the CEO and the owner who's doing the negotiation. The buck stops with them. And that's not an effective way of negotiating. You always want to have somebody you want to have whoever's doing the negotiation have somebody that they can go to because it gives you the ability to step back from the table
2: mm-hmm. to
1: say, Oh, I, I think I can do that. I just need to get it approved. But I've been in negotiations where I've literally said, I'm really concerned about you doing that. And this is why I'm concerned. I'm concerned that there are long-term implications that could actually hurt the situation or cause cause additional costs or do whatever. Yeah. So it's a matter and, of kind of who I'm negotiating with and the level of transparency that exists in the deal.
0: And not to put words in your mouth, Christine, and not that this is an, you know, a, a frequent thing, but it's almost like it's never, it's not outside the realm of possibility where if you could afford to pay $2 a unit and they're giving you $1 a unit and you know that they need to be do, charging 125 in order to do business, it's not outside the realm. to Be like, listen, you sure you can do this? That you don't want 125 to make sure that you can meet your goals or XYZ is—is is that a fair way of of saying that?
1: So that I probably wouldn't do. So uh-huh. I, I, in my negotiation style, I mean, I have assumptions about what my counterparts' financial positions are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and. All of, that's all I've got are assumptions. And I will never have as much information about the internal workings and strategies of my counterpart as obviously my counterpart does. Right. So there may be something that I may have this view of you know what kind of what they can do that's different because maybe they you know maybe they rolled out a new manufacturing process that's cut yeah. their costs by a significant maybe they have a financial
0: backer that you're not thinking of which is going back to why it's you said before you're putting in assurances for yourself and you're guiding them but maybe you're not going to be so direct
1: yes exactly so that but i but i'll be honest i've worked with procurement departments in some fortune 500 companies and taught and taught them how to to negotiate and we've actually walked away from deals with some of my clients because the price was too low and we were concerned about it. So you you want to be able to have a rationale. So you just need to be able to answer the questions and have that ra- rationale prepared. Like if your price is you know 50% lower or heck if it's 30% lower, 25% lower than your competition, then a natural question for a procurement person, if you're selling to a big company is why, what, what about your, what, what are you doing that allows your price to be so much lower than your competitors?
2: Mm-hmm. Right? right.
1: Because that raises alarm bells that I'd be assuming a lot more risk. Right. And I, and that I need protection with that, which is why I would use language in the contract to address that risk component. If they, if they, if they were confident that that pricing was correct,
0: yeah. If the deal looks too good to be true, there it's a red flag.
1: Yeah, and the other thing is, is that another big thing is, you know, kind. Of, I want to go back a little bit to that, to that bully kind of question. If somebody's bullying you before you have a contract, they. I guarantee you they will continue bullying you after you have a contract. Stop Mm. doing business with bullies. There are plenty of nice people out there who are great businessmen and businesswomen You do not have to do business with bullies. So I'm just tired of bullies like getting all this damn press and attention and all this stuff. It's like stop doing business. If you don't like them and they're bullying you before you have a contract, that relationship is only going to get worse.
0: Mm. You will find out in a minute or two, but you may have inadvertently answered my final question of the day for you. But we'll get there before we get there. My second to last question of the day for you is, you know, obviously, this has been really intriguing. If people want to learn more about you and even connect with you, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: So we talked initially about renegotiation. And so what I want to do is give your listeners a gift. So we have a, negotiation, a renegotiation webinar that we want to offer to your guests for free. So they can just text renegotiate to two, six, seven, eight, six, and they can take that webinar, do that for free. They'll also get my seven essential elements to successful negotiation and they'll get to take a quiz to learn their negotiation style.
0: Nice. And I'll, I'll put this in the, um, in the description of, of the show on, on shattered and mold I'll also put it in the YouTube subscription when I upload the video. And, um, I imagine, you know, that this will be out when your when your podcast is up so i'll put links to that as well for people
1: awesome thank you
0: yeah for sure and i Great guess my time. my last question is and again i don't know if you inadvertently answered it but you know just given your the skin that you have in the game and the experience that you have here if you could go back to your younger self starting on this journey and give her like what is the number one piece of adv- like negotiating advice that you'd want her to know right away from the get-go so that she could basically save herself a lot of headaches that could have just as easily been, been learned and that one statement or that one piece of advice that you could
1: have given her uh, can i do two <laughs>
0: yeah please well i'll so, take it
1: so the first one is ask for more of what you want and the second one is no is a full stop sentence
2: hmm.
0: could you expound on that part please
1: so no is the most powerful word that you can use in a negotiation. So many times, so this kind of goes back to your bullies. So many times we are convinced and we, yet that we should be doing something in a negotiation. And yet there's something like just sitting like not right. And so we kind of hem and haw and kind of pussyfoot around it when no is actually the best answer. No, I cannot do that. And then no leads to other conversation, because somebody will say, somebody will say, why can't you or what what makes it so that you're not able to to agree to that. And so it elicits more conversation. No is not about conflict. It's Mm. about setting boundaries. And it is so important in your negotiation that you effectively set your boundaries, so that you're not being taken advantage of and that you can And then you can win more of the things that you want. And the other part is just asking for more of what you want. Women and minorities in particular, there's a lot of studies around this. And I I, I just anecdotally was on a call call recently with a venture capitalist. And he was telling me how women and minorities frequently come in and they ask for less money than they need, even in their business plan. So the business plan shows that they need a certain amount of money to survive, And they will ask for less than that. And whereas white men go in and ask for a lot more of that because they're conditioned to be able to do that. And they're comfortable doing that. And, but that sets, you know, for, for women and minorities, that sets us up for failure. Because what are we going to do? Go and ask for more money? That hurts the relationship. So ask for more of what you want. Don't be afraid to ask for more. And then make sure you use the power of no to have to set boundaries and to maintain leverage. Saying no gives you power.
0: And just to clarify the whole, the whole thing about more of what you want, that doesn't necessarily mean money. In fact, in most cases, I assume it isn't about money, correct?
1: So most of, so I actually have a policy where I will not negotiate price until after the contract is negotiated. Mm. So because So an example, I negotiated a deal with Verizon uh, for one of my clients. It was a 130-page contract. It took nine months to negotiate. We spent 15 minutes negotiating price. Wow. Because price should fall out of all the rest of the negotiation. Otherwise, you go and you lead with price, and you don't know all the other things that have cost related elements to it that could be eating away at your margin. Price Mm. should be the last thing you negotiate.
0: Now I could be wrong, but I feel like if I enter a negotiation and I say that, I'm almost projecting myself and representing myself as a more experienced negotiator who's going to be more respected just by doing that. I don't know if that's a ninja move, but um, hearing you say that, that's where my brain went.
1: It is. I mean, I've had major companies get pretty ticked off with me because they just want to get to price. The procurement people were like, "We just want to do." This. I'm like, "I don't care." Because you're a big company, my client's a small company. You're going to impose all these operational things that you're going to make them do, and I don't know how much those things are going to cost. I'm not going to agree to a price until I know how this contract is going to impact my client's operationally um, from a cash flow perspective. That's not not doing that. <laughs>
0: Right. And last question, Christine, I'm sorry, just because it popped in my head. I'm like, oh, this this will be great to ask her. Um, Leading up to this, it wasn't even in preparation for your interview, but I like I always find myself going down a YouTube rabbit hole, just exploring a certain element of human nature. Mm -hmm. And a rabbit hole I went down like last week was uh, Pawn Stars, um, Uh where, you know, that. Basically I just I watch like an endless array of all the negotiations and I pick up on the patterns. Like, you know, the the bald guy behind the counter, he's always like, Oh, no matter what money he hears, like it's always positioning, he's always this, he's always doing that. And the lesson that I learned is like from these people is like, at least from pawn stars, and not about this, mm-hmm. it's like they should always be asking for way more money in those cases because he's always gonna undercut them. Mm -hmm. My question to you, as it relates to real world negotiations that have nothing to do with pawning something off, is it strategically sound to ask for more money with the expectation that they're going to try to lowball you anywhere, anyway, and they're going to try to make you meet in the middle. So you're trying to get a stronger position to backtrack to something that you want. Is that smart or is that stupid or does it depend on the situation?
1: It it definitely depends on the situation. I mean, in your example around the pawn stars, right? So there's, I make a delineation between haggling and negotiating. So like that star element is more of a haggling situation um, and less of an actual negotiation. Cause that's um, just
0: about money and not about all these other yeah. things.
1: Yeah. Thank you me. don't have, you don't have the, I consider haggling something that when you don't have a lot of levers to pull and it's ends up being mostly about money. You might have a few other things, but it's mostly about money. Whereas negotiation is There's generally something that's more complex about it that impacts money, but the money isn't the only element and oftentimes isn't the most important element of the negotiation.
0: You know, I'll tell you, Christine, I, I, give a lot of thought lately to, like, why I'm doing this podcast, what are the peripheral or unexpected benefits that I get that I didn't necessarily anticipate or expect Mm -hmm. in the beginning of my journey? And one of them that I certainly get is this opportunity to interview, um, you know, world-class experts in a field and basically get a free consultation and get to pick their brain for an hour um, for free. Like, how cool is that? Um, And I think, today's conversation is a perfect example. And I, and I, I, I highlight today is because people basically are going to get this with you every day when they check out the podcast, but thank you for coming on this show and sharing your wisdom and insight and answering my questions. Cause I know I like to go in different directions and, and you met me more than halfway on every single one. So thank you so much for being here. I'm really grateful. And I'm so excited for how this insight and advice might help the listeners in so many different ways in the future.
1: Uh, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you so much. And thank you to all your listeners. So happy negotiation.
0: Thank you again, Christine. That was an amazing, amazing interview. I really appreciate it. Guys, if you haven't done so already, now's the time to pull out your phone, hit that subscribe button, and while you're at it, leave a quick, honest, written review. And also, be sure to check out In the Zone, Christine's new podcast. I'm going to leave a link to that in the YouTube description of this if you're watching this in video format, or if you're listening in audio, I'm going to leave it in the section on ShatteredAmolePodcast.com where this interview resides. I'm also going to leave in those texting instructions that she gave if you want to check out her webinar on renegotiation and her other bonuses. And as long as I'm giving you a bunch of links, quick reminder, you can always go to lastlawofattractionbook.com if you want to check out my book, The Last Law of Attraction Book You'll Ever Need to Read, or if you don't want to pull out your wallet, you can go check out the YouTube channel devoted to it at youtube.com slash But with that said, thank you so much as always for listening. Thank you so much for your feedback. Thank you so much for your support. And get ready. We've got more awesome guests on the way soon. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Shatter the Mold at www.ShatterTheMoldPodcast.com. My name is Andrew S. Kaplan. My name is
2: Andrew S. Kaplan, and it's time to Shatter the Mold.